I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I can't fix it. I'm treating the symptom of it. You know, my wheelhouse is dead or alive. I walk in, you're almost dead, give you some medicine. Oh, well, now you're alive. That's pleasant. But you're still addicted. The problem still is there. This is Death, Sex, and Money. It would be murder. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Did you know that men with full heads of hair earn 17% more than their bald counterparts? And need to talk about more. Look, I'm not going to discuss my private life with total strangers. I'm Anna Sale. How much is heroin a part of what you do? Daily. Daily. I think our high-water mark day was 18 overdoses within 24 hours. This is Mark Strickland. He's an EMS supervisor for the fire department in Charleston, West Virginia, where I'm from. These days, he spends a lot of his time reviving people who've overdosed on opiates and dealing with them when they wake up. Having to wrestle with people, fight because they've come out of an overdose, combative, they're scared. The last thing they knew, they're committing a felony because they're shooting heroin up their arm. So, I mean, we all roll up dressed in navy blue. Hell, we look like cops. So... We have to be able to calm people down because if they get up and run out in the middle of the street scared and get hit by a car, we've not done our jobs. I talked with Mark at a firehouse in Charleston. He's 41 and has been a first responder for nearly 20 years. He typically works 24 hours on, 48 hours off. With his wife, he's raising three boys not far from this firehouse. Um, I decided that I wanted to be a fireman when I was five years old. Uh, my dad was a volunteer fireman in a small town where we grew up, in Clendenin. And I would always uh, be with him when he'd go to the firehouse or go on calls, and I thought that, that was a pretty exciting life. Uh-huh. Anyway, I, I got into that, and it was not to sound like a, a Hallmark card, but it was, it was a way to help people. You're given everything you've got to help people in distress, no matter what it may be. And our job is very simple. You listen to a voice to come out of a speaker in a radio, and they tell you where to go and what they presume to be wrong. So you find out what's going on with whomever, and you address their emergency, and you stop loss right there, whether it's a fire, a heart attack, an overdose, um, whatever's wrong in their life. You, you said pre- stop loss? Stop loss. You put the fire out where it is. Drug overdose deaths in the U.S. have skyrocketed in the last five years, but they're the highest in West Virginia. The overdose death rate here was nearly three times the national average in 2015, the last year complete CDC data is available. It wasn't like this when I lived here. And it also wasn't like this when Mark was first training to become a paramedic in the late 90s. He learned how to use Narcan, a life-saving drug that blocks opioid receptors. But back then, he rarely used it. It would expire on the shelves. We didn't go to heroin overdoses or opiate overdoses all that often. And now I'm keeping 
preloads an Arcan in the in the driver's door of my cruiser at work. When did you notice that the job of first responders in this community was starting to change because of drug use? Hmm. Um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, clandestine meth labs became all the rage. Uh, meth moved in the community, the uh, shake and bake cooking, one pot cooking, the, the clandestine labs, um, we started encountering those. I remember um, that. That's when I was living here. And, right. And there was the issue of not only, like, fires, but they were hazardous waste zones, too, Absolutely. for you. Is if, it? Yeah. If you didn't go in and get exposed through the smoke, um, if we went in, a lot of times people would call in an, an odor, a chemical odor. Uh, it was just awful. So when did that, when did you notice that shift into something different? As as that was being addressed, um, the trend of prescription drug abuse was rearing up, was ramping up. Um, some doctors with ill-gotten gain in mind would open pill mills, and they'd just rent a building and put a sign outside that said, you know, Dr. Smith, pain clinic. And you could come in and say, my back hurts, here's $100, and he'd write you a prescription. And the DEA, local law enforcement, state law enforcement, and a bunch of people started talking back and forth, said, hey, we're having all these people overdosing on opiates. The hell, we got we to gotta do something. Well, I know what we'll do. We'll stamp out the pill mills. And they did. The bad thing was the addicts remain. Um, but my, uh, if you will, patient zero for this heroin, people use the word epidemic. My patient zero was in a house on the west side of Charleston. Not far uh, from here, then. Not far from here at all. Picture, if you will, the white-sided wood frame house, swear to God, white picket fence, morning glories growing in it, right? Car in the driveway, nice and washed. Nice home. Uh, we get called for the for the possible deceased person. And this is like four in the morning. And I go into this house, lights are on, and a woman sitting at the kitchen table, of course, has been crying. Uh, my ambulance crew beat me. They were there and standing over top of this gentleman in the floor, laying on his right side, obviously deceased. And one of the, the young guys we had on the ambulance said, hey, Captain, what's this? And he pointed to the desk, and there's a cap of a needle, two other needles that were unused, a tourniquet, and then an open and two unopened bindles of dope. They'd crimped off two ends of a drinking straw, and there's dope in the middle of it. I looked back at the patient, and I looked back at the wife, and I said, ma'am, how long has this guy used heroin? And she started crying. Mm. I said, look, I, I'm not judging. I'm just asking a question. I mean, I got heroin here in the desk. I got a needle cap. I'm going to guess when I roll him over, I'm going to find a needle in his arm. How long has he done drugs? And she just started bawling, crying. I said, since he came home from Vietnam, he's used therapeutically heroin. He's always gone out of town to get it. He's never sold it. He doesn't deal it. He doesn't get it. It just keeps him stable. So I asked her, I said, where did he get this? Where did he get this? This is usual stuff. And she told me, no, his dealer gave him those for free and asked him to use them and that it was something new and wanted him to put the price on it. And it registered my head if this guy's done heroin since 1970, God knows what. But this stuff killed him. Lickety split. Half of this stuff killed him. He didn't even get the whole shot in his arm. 
what's new about this stuff compared to anything else. And from there, I noticed it being an everyday event. Specific to the calls where you're watching people who are nearly dead, Mm -hmm. you're bringing them back to life, and you find them again nearly dead. Mm -hmm. Um, Does it feel like you have a really close-up view on something that's like kind of breaking down? Very much so. Um, On on those calls, um, a lot of times I've walked out feeling as much of an enabler as the dealers on the street because if I just show up and shove some Narcan in your arm and you better now? You good? You're going to be sick later. See ya. And walk out. What the hell have I done? Now given the only thing you need to be to go to rehab is alive. Got to have a pulse to get in rehab. That's handy. So if I don't go out and do my job assessing the human body in front of me and give Narcan to an opiate overdose and get them alive then they're never going to have the chance to go to rehab. And we, we've heard the commentary, both locally and, and nationally, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're just wasting money on these people. You just all let them die. If they've overdosed twice, you should just not have to Narcan them again. You get three strikes in life, right? Well, I don't know, do you? How many diabetics do we go to that, oh, you know what? You let your sugar drop again because you didn't take your insulin rights. So now I've got to give you D50. I've done that to you twice. Time for you to die. Seriously? How many of those patients do you say, Mm-mm. two bites of the apple, you're done. So who are we to judge a person, rich, poor, black, white, Jew, Christian, Muslim? I don't care. They're a human being. Do you think you're stopping loss? I don't know. I don't know. Um, the The... The left side, right side, the left side, the, the, the bleeding heart, save the world side says you're giving people the chance to go to rehab, to change their ways, to be a productive citizen. You're giving that kid his father back. Even if for another day, you're helping that family recover. EMS is doing their part to stop loss. We're preventing deaths from overdoses. And that's the left side, bleeding heart, unicorns and rainbows. The dark side says, yeah. All we're doing is perpetuating a problem. We're keeping more addicts on the street. If there weren't as many customers, there wouldn't be the industry for dealers because all the patients would be dead. So why should we pay our taxes for our cities, our counties, our states to buy Narcan to put on ambulances because you want to go commit a felony and you want to go shoot heroin? We've had many people, many patients that we've run two and three and four times uh, my high water mark on repeat offenders or uh, frequent flyer customers. Everyone look at it was 11. I ran a guy 11 times. Did he make it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, probably the thing that makes me the, the most mad and the, the ones that the ones that piss me off are the ones involving kids when kids are home. And Reddit 437, engine 452, attention 408, cross street, Anaconda Avenue, Clover Street, 27 year old male, cardiac arrest. That's an overdose. I'll be back. You need to go? Yeah, that's everyone overdose. I'll bet you paycheck. I met Mark for the first time when I was back home in Charleston last month. 
When he got the interview request from us, at first he thought the email from death, sex, and money was some kind of prank from the guys at work. In a follow-up email, I proved my local cred by telling him where I went to high school. I've become used to updates from home about someone I knew or someone I knew's little brother or sister dying of an overdose. It's not just in West Virginia, of course, but the current opioid epidemic has its roots in this part of the country. And it's been this way for years now, so much so that you can almost become numb to it. I wanted to hear from someone who can't ignore it. And that led me to Mark. Next week, we have another episode about opioids. It's a story we don't hear often enough about life after heroin. I talked to my dear friend, Danielle, who's been sober for more than eight years. She grew up on Long Island, and I met her in Brooklyn after she'd stopped using. But I asked her to come in to tell me about how her addiction started and how her habit ended, beginning with her first 12-step meeting in Manhattan. I saw, like, a sort of celebrity there, and I saw people get into a chair fight. They, like, throwing chairs at each other. And I remember thinking, this is the coolest place I've ever been in my life. I loved it. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism— There's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After the call came over the radio about the 27-year-old man in cardiac arrest, Mark jumped into a fire truck with some of his colleagues and they were gone. We waited at the firehouse, and Mark was back within an hour. Sorry about that. Don't apologize. Mark told me a woman had called 911 when she found her boyfriend unconscious. Boyfriend was sleeping over his girlfriend's house, and she went to check on her three-year-old son in the other room and noticed that he wasn't breathing too well and called 911 and thought he was dead, and he was breathing about four times a minute and ashen and gray-looking, kind of sweaty, and... um, his percentage of blood, percentage of, ox, percentage of oxygen in his bloodstream was less than 50%. So we controlled his airway and used a bag valve mask and breathed for him and started an IV. Pushed a Narcan and he woke up. And um, you said there was a three-year-old in the house? There was. He was in the other room. He was in his room playing and his mom kept him away and didn't let him see and, and what have you. But that's just... Those are the tough ones for us, is this well-intentioned mother trying to make it. Her boyfriend's in there shooting up heroin in her house, and now we've got to report that to CPS. To Child Protective Services. Right. Had you, um, had you seen this particular guy before? No, he just got out of prison for drug distribution charges. Mm. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about, like, how you integrate what you see every day at work into your life, what happens when you go home, what happens when you're off the shift? 
since, since I live in Charleston, it, it's hard to it's hard to take it off. You know, you can take your boots off when you go in the door and you can change uniforms, but it's hard to go to the same grocery store where you've run overdoses in the bathroom, and it, it's hard to go there and take it off. You know, it's it's kind of hard to take it off. Um, we're very frank with our kids. Like, did they know if you're in a grocery store, you flash back to, to reviving someone in the bathroom? Is that something you'll share with your kids? Yeah, I'll tell them about it because I want them to know without a doubt what drugs will do to you. And we tell them, look, if you're ever approached, hey, buddy, do you want to try this? Tell them, no, my dad makes me pee in a cup. You know, he's a he's a bastard. He's just mean. Do he, you? No. But you said that's a that's a thing that's you can okay say. Out. It's tough to it's tough to say no. It's tough to face the peer pressure of, hey, buddy, why don't you? Come on, you know. And it's tough to say no. I was like, blame it on me. Blame it on your mom. Be the person to say, hey, look, you know, you know my dad does it work. Your oldest is 16? 16. Your youngest is how old? Almost 12. So you almost have three teenage boys. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to be a good dad. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to prepare them to make good choices. Right. And then... In your job, you are having to take care of people who are making choices that you think are bad choices. Right. That's tough. That's I've identified that. It took several years, but um, I'm not real big on the whole huggy, touchy, feely side of things. Right. I'm was taught by old school people in fire and EMS both that said, "Hey, look, kid, suck it up and you go and do it. We we do this job because nobody else can. Okay. So you suck it up." And you don't cry about it. You don't bitch about it. You do your job. Go get your paycheck. Go do your next job and go on. Um, crawling in a bottle was usually a um, okay reason to just deal with job stress. And we all know that's not. That's a crutch. That's that's an addiction of another sort. But that was like the culture you came yeah. up with old school. It was sort of it was like. choir practice. We're going to have choir practice down at Joey's at uh, 8 o'clock. Come on down. And you we went to choir practice and. Throw back a bunch of beers. Yeah, yeah. Which, Talk about work or no? Yeah, yeah. That's that's where you do it because it's okay then because ah we were just drinking and carrying on. That's why I got emotional, man. It's all right, and that's okay. That's how you deal with it. I don't want this generation of kids coming up behind me in the fire service doing that. Um, do you still drink? Yeah, socially. Do, do you drink? Do you do the choir practice thing anymore? Um, no, thanks to iPhones and technology and Facebook and stuff, you can't get people off their hind ends to come out and do stuff like that anymore. People oh. just sit on Facebook about stuff. I'm not a Facebook fan. I'm not a social media fan. Um, I think it's antisocial because we're noticing that the generation of people, generation of Americans that have had phones in their hands since they were babies have a very hard time having interpersonal communications out of people. They can't do it. They'll text you. They'll tweet you. They'll email you. And that's fine. But to sit down and hold a conversation or to have to assess a patient and ask them questions is awful. So you... So on the one hand, maybe it was slightly unhealthy behavior to drink maybe a little too much mm-hmm. to get rid of work stress, mm-hmm. but at least there was some sense of community in right. while you were. Right. And, and now is there that at all? There is, there is to an extent. We, we've, we've learned that addressing the possible tie-in to PTSD um, is something we should do. But by and large, mo- most first responders um, – will shun away from the PTSD phrase. Um, that's what guys get from coming home from Afghanistan and Iraq because they've earned that. If you're in a foreign country taking hostile fire, yeah, I can totally get down with whatever you need to do to deal with your demons. That's that's awful. Yeah, you know, I got a couple people shooting up the west side and a whole bunch of dope in town. 
I'm still here. I'm still in America. I'm good, brother. I can go to the store and get a six pack. So <clears throat> I I'm not big on sitting and talking job stress and stuff. You should know it's gonna be kind of tough. I mean, if this job was easy, everybody would do it. But it's not. It's tough and it's supposed to be tough. Tough what's makes it's what makes it good. Um but you go out and deal, you know that you're going out here in the community to help people. People call 911 because they don't know what else to do. Do you talk to your wife about a hard day at the end of the day, or do you want to some. not talk about it? There's some. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there's some things I won't discuss with anybody that hadn't been there. There's just some things, unless you've lived to smell to taste it, touched it, that you're not going to understand and to try to have to sit and explain it aggravates me even more. So instead of doing that, what did you do work today? Eh, yeah, ran a couple calls, busy day, a couple overdoses, whatever, and go on. How would you feel if your boys wanted to follow in your footsteps and, and do EMS Smack and fire them right in the mouth? Smack them right in the mouth. Why? They'd, um, the job's changing. I guess the, the, the parent in me wants to shield my kids from bad things. Um, you know, what you see on TV is okay, and we'll talk about it. But, you know, there's some details and grisly things that, in, unless you've been with me going down that hallway or going down that dark alley or in that attic or in that upside-down car or minivan or whatever, you don't know it. You can't smell it. You can't feel it. You can't relate to it, and you don't need to. But other people that have that shared experience, we can talk about. And I know what that guy's been through, and he knows where I've been. So, yeah, I'd uh, I'd rather my boys not uh, not have the potential for physical injury nor um, mental, psychological, emotional issues. Have you had a moment where you've thought, I'm not sure I want to do this job? No. Um, I might have just lied to you. I've had days of, why in the hell would anybody do this job? But it's quickly countered with, with just a quick look around the room at, at the guys with me. And, oh, yeah, that's why, because cause we're here. Because if we don't, who in the hell's going to? Um, and it gets back to the challenge. You know, the tough makes it good. The, the toughness of the job, the, you know, hey, you wanted to do this. Remember that little kid always wanted to do this. Well, here you are. So do it. That's Mark Strickland. He told me he used to plan on retiring at 65, but now he thinks he'll retire as soon as he's eligible, when he's 50. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to my former colleague Bob Wilkinson for helping out on this recording. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money. 
And for more on how one West Virginia community is grappling with heroin, check out the great Netflix documentary called Heroin, produced by the filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon, along with my office mates at the Center for Investigative Reporting. And that's heroin with E in parentheses at the end, because it's about three incredible West Virginia women. Mark says his kids like that he's home for 48 hours after those 24-hour shifts. But he does say keeping track of where he is in the week can be challenging. Um, I know if I pass a church and the parking lot's full in the morning, it's probably a Sunday. If I pass a church and it's full in the evening, it's either a Sunday or Wednesday. If I pass a bar and that parking lot's full, it's either a Wednesday, a Friday, or a Saturday. And Mondays and Thursdays and Tuesdays, I have no idea how to keep track of. What happens at bars on Wednesday nights? Working Women's Wednesday. It's just Wednesday night. It's hump day. Oh, it's hump day. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's hump day. Time to go to the bar. <laughs> I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.